So I'm walking into first service this morning and uh, I, I have some treats to give out in relation to our wonderful marriage event that is coming up. And uh, a guy walks up to me and he gives me some money and he says, hey, listen, I really believe in this marriage thing um, and there may be somebody that needs to go and the money is getting in the way and so I want you to know I want to pay for that. And I thought that was pretty cool. And so I, I know that it might be kind of weird if uh, I said, so who needs $40, right? That might be a little weird. But let me say this. There is someone here at our church that cares enough about your marriage that they were more than glad to, uh, to pay for that. And so I'm going to take these and I'm going to leave them up here as a reminder. And uh, if you come up and you want to see me, and here, here's what you can do. You can even pay it forward if you want to. I have no idea. I'm going to leave that between you and God. Um, but do know that we care enough and that there are just people um, all around you, sitting all around you, that care for your marriage. And, uh, and this event that we're putting on is not going to fix it. It's not, we don't believe in magic. We don't, not at all. I don't believe in magic. Um, but I do believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I do believe coming together and having uh, some very real conversations, and I enjoy good music, don't you? So we're going to bring all of those things together, and if you would like to take advantage of somebody's kindness, you don't even need to feel bad about it. You don't. If you want to take advantage of somebody's kindness and then pay it forward this year, next year, that's between you and the Lord. Know that you are loved. So, and the other thing is, is that if in like 10 years your marriage is in trouble, I can say to you, yeah, well, 10 years ago, did you take me up on it? And when you say no, I go, well, then what do you expect? So, lots of different options. Okay, why are you rolling your eyes at me, sweetheart? See what I have to put up with? Okay. <laughs> Oh, I love her. Okay, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter four. We are at the, the back part of that chapter and we're gonna be talking about um, Jesus' preparation for ministry. Uh, he is about to go public. Okay, this is his IPO. He's about to go public and he's excited about this opportunity. It's interesting to think that the Son of God waited until he was 30 before he did this. So for those of us that kind of look back on our lives and realize, wow, did I waste my life and you're 22? <laughs> you just don't get it um, for lots of reasons, but there's really a, a kind of a deep, a, a depth, a texture to this. It is good for us to, to realize the importance of preparation. Jesus isn't just about this flashy ministry. Um, and the other thing that is going to be really important for us to look at as we move forward into chapters 5, 6, and 7, and we see the kingdom of God expanding and developing and growing, what is Jesus building his kingdom on? And this is where a lot of people today are getting it wrong, that we get enthralled with even biblical community. I mean, I love, Mark, I don't disagree with the word you said, brother, I loved it. But sometimes what we want is for people to just belong. That's what we really want. No clicks here. And we can be your bestest friend you've ever had. And that's not what the church is about. Now, I think you will find like community off the chart, biblical, deep, profound, transparent, and true. I believe that you should find that in church. But we're not here selling community and we're not here selling self-help. We're not here selling anything. We are here witnessing to who Jesus Christ is. And so what you see as we kind of head into this section, what you actually see is the identity of Jesus being talked about over and over and over again. John the Baptist arrives on the scene, and what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. 
I'm not here to point to myself. I'm here to point to the one who matters the most. What he does not say is, hey, by the way, you think I'm a good teacher. You gotta meet this guy. He is entertained to the stories he tells. I mean, you will die laughing. And then right when you think you can't laugh anymore, he kind of does this reversal thing and he kind of gives you this deep truth and you go, wow, you are so smart. That's not what John says. John points at the identity, who he is, what he is all about. That's what he's pointing to. Behold the Lamb of God that comes and takes away the sins of the world. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with water and with fire. It describes just the identity of who Jesus Christ is. So identity matters. Not only that, but we actually see the identity of Jesus being described by God himself. Right? Identity. So when Jesus is being baptized, what do you see? You see God, or what do you hear? You hear God say, behold, this is one of the most insightful people who understands the deep spiritual intricacies of human existence. Now, that's what a lot of people say about Jesus, though. They're, they're amazed. Well, what they see in Jesus Christ is somebody who, who understands the God within. <laughs> well, when he says he understands the God within, he's talking himself, not all humanity. Yes, we were made in the image of God, but Jesus isn't some guru. He's not insightful. God says this, and this is my son whom I love. I am well pleased with him. He's describing something to the very core of who Jesus Christ is. Identity matters. And then he wanders, he doesn't wander. The Holy Spirit pulls him into the wilderness and he is tempted. And the devil says, since you are the son of God, then do these great things. And what is at stake here is the, the, the identity of who Jesus Christ is. And he proves himself victorious, demonstrating I am the one who can die. And when I die because of my sinless life, I will be the one that will pull you. I will be the one that will bring you into the, the, to the presence of God and you will find peace and rec reconciliation through me. It is about identity. That is so important for you to recognize and realize. But it's not just about like identity. What we actually see as we move into today's text, we also see, and you'll know where I get this kind of three-word repeated phrase, as we're going to see beginning in verse 12, it's also about location, location, location. It really is. That what Matthew is portraying is not just some principled truth, but about Jesus. And what he's also not describing is that it really doesn't matter where or when, but we see some real intentionality about location about where Jesus comes from. You know, the location does matter. Where will be the one who is born king of the Jews? Bethlehem, look there. And after uh, king Herod decides to go after him, the question becomes, what, how does this fit into the prophecy out of Egypt, out of this particular location I will call my son? That's not the only location that matters. And as we see in verse 12, what Matthew's going to do is going to reach back into the Old Testament prophecies and realize that not just where Jesus was born, but where Jesus does a lot of his ministry is a prophecy to scripture. Why, why does this matter? Because the identity of Jesus Christ is not one of self-actualization. It's not Jesus coming into an understanding, wow, I sure seem to be God-like. But it's Jesus being obedient to his Father. It's Jesus following the will of the Father. And so he finds himself in places 
to fulfill what God the Father promised through the prophets. I love the consistency. I don't know about you, I need that kind of consistency. I love it when Isaiah speaks in Isaiah 9 and then Jesus fulfills Matthew 4. There isn't a plan B. God's plan was always to send his son in whom he is well pleased to die for us and to establish his kingdom. So here's how Matthew records it, verse 12. And now when he, this is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, these would have been two tribes. Zebulun and Naphtali would have actually been brothers of Joseph, brothers of Judah, brothers of Reuben, brothers of Levi. Way back, so these would be the great-grandchildren of Abraham, and they are tribes. They were given specific land in the northern part of Israel. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So Jesus is there purposefully. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles, which means it's not a strongly Jewish area. But even just beyond that, to the north, that is where Gentiles, non-Jewish people, live and reside. Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. See, God cares about location. So much so that like he sent his son not just to be part of the Bethlehem King David story, but then he sends him, he locates him way up north. See, Jesus is there and he will spend the majority of his ministry, you can't get around it, Jesus will spend the majority of his ministry speaking to his Jewish brothers and sisters and, uh, and, and, and their, their desire to be faithful to their God, to God. But it's not just to them. That God's plan and therefore Jesus' ministry, what we'll see throughout Matthew's gospel, is like a directional focus. That as much as Jesus comes to establish and he says, I even came to Israel to preach this truth, but it was never intended to stay there. It's good to remember that. That when Jesus comes and when our lives are changed, sure, it's awesome that we go through the, the experience. Sure, it's awesome when, when, a, when a young person comes to Jesus Christ. But we're not supposed to stay where we are. And not just spiritually, but even locationally. That when our identity is fundamentally changed by the identity of Jesus Christ, then our location begins to take on his location, which means we find ourselves in many different places being obedient to the Holy Spirit and taking the truth about who Jesus Christ is and what he's about wherever we go. It's Matthew's gospel, probably the most Jewish of all the four gospels, that loves to underline and point out this is not just a Jewish message. And I'll tell you, speaking for the Gentiles that I am, thank you. Thank you. Let, let, me, let me kind of show you how this fits in because I don't know about you, I love maps. This is the area known as Israel. You have the Mediterranean Sea on the one side. You have the Jordan River. You have the Sea of Galilee at the top. And then you have the Dead Sea at the bottom. And when he says he withdrew from there, it's, he's not tail between the legs running for his life, but it really is important to realize how this land was divided up. A part of the land, the bottom part of the land, was a province known as Judea, as, as its capital, X marks the spot, Jerusalem. 
And in this part, you have probably the, the hotbed of religious conservatism. You've got, this is where the, definitely the Sadducees who are associated with the temple are going to be. And although the Pharisees could be in a lot of different places, when Jesus finds himself in some of the greatest trouble, it is in this area. Judaism is rich and thick. And Jesus is a, a, is a threat. And when he withdraws from there, he goes north, way north, up to the Sea of Galilee. And not only is Nazareth near there, but actually Rex marks a spot. That's where the city of Capernaum is. Uh, Jesus' hometown would have been Nazareth, but there's actually more encounters and conversations, um, probably other than Jerusalem, in Capernaum. Jesus spends a lot of time there preaching in their synagogue and teaching there. And this is what they mean by um, the, the, the area to the north. And, and there Jesus has, not only does he get into trouble, in his hometown they try to throw him off a cliff, which isn't too far from this, right? So Jesus finds um, enemies. Jesus finds those who want to oppose him everywhere he goes. But it's later on, as the Gospels explain, it's when Jesus wants to go from Galilee back down to Judea that the disciples go, okay, why are we going back there again? Isn't, last time we were in Judea, isn't that when they tried to kill you? Right? Why are we going back to, to where it is the, the most intense? And it's because Jesus is going to die in Jerusalem. He knows that. Now, some other places right in the middle is known as Samaria. The Good Samaritan story would have happened in that location because um, you would have the city of Jericho not too far from that. And so it's right on that Samaritan line. Um, and then the other area is that beyond the Jordan by way of it, if you keep going in that direction, you will actually have Syria, which also appears in our text. So Jesus finds himself just moving back and forth between Judea where the religious experts are and then up north where the crowds love to gather. And Jesus finds himself going back and forth. I, I don't want to read too much into this, but it just seems to just make sense that what Jesus does is Jesus offers his hope and his truth for those who are religiously on track, or at least think they are, and those who are far from him. Jesus is reaching out to both of them, but he's reaching out to both of them with a very consistent message. The consistent message that you see in Matthew 3, verse 2, from John the Baptist, this is what John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is what always is spoken by the prophets throughout the Bible. Repent, change your mind, change your mind. And we, we're going to keep hitting on this because I think there is so much baggage, um, there's so much confusion about this word that too often we as uh, church-going folk, we love to kind of get this word of repent tied up into feeling bad for the things that we've done. So we feel repent. I really feel sorry for that. I really feel bad about that. Is that what you're talking about? No? Now, I think that the process of realizing just how wrong we are about God or how wrong we are about ourselves or how wrong we are about our standing before God, I think that would lead to some profound emotional responses. But what we're talking about here is a repentance that, that means that we will take what God is speaking and it will begin to reorder our thinking. So what is entrance into the kingdom? Is it about like who we're related to? And the answer is no. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. 
Does it matter um, like where you live? And the answer is no, it's not about where you live. Actually, if you don't have an opportunity to hear it, hopefully the church, hopefully this church is actually in the business of taking the gospel to people. We're not coming here only. We're coming here and we're, let's go tell. Let's go tell. But the one requirement to respond, to be a part of this kingdom is repentance. Because without repentance, you already know everything that you need to know. And there's no room in your life. There's no room in your heart. There's no room in your attitude. There's no room in your thinking for God to speak and for you to respond. Actually, I already know that. I already, I already understand that. I already live like that. Or I'm already comfortable with that. I'm already, I'm already settled into that. I mean, one of the most destructive things that I believe our enemy has convinced us of societally is that what you need to be is more of you. And nobody should ever try to change you. And nobody should ever try to, uh, to force their will upon you. That, that what you need to be in order to be a real human being is just more of what you already are. That is just broken thinking. Think about how much we even teach our children that fundamentally challenges them to not be repentant people. You know? People get married, whatever you do, don't let her change you. Whatever you do, don't let him change you. You stay who you are. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant stuff that you can find. Here's how brilliant it is. They, it's all written through my high school yearbook. How do you beat that? Smartest people I ever met. But listen, <laughs> it's not just high school, Right? It's, it's our lives. I, I really do believe this. We had two baptisms first service. We had one baptism just a few moments ago. They may get it better than any of us right now. They may get it better than all of us put together. I mean, there's something about the responsive heart. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter four, verse 17, Matthew records this. And from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent. Change your mind. Think about these things in terms of God. And not just think, like, consider, but adopt. Like, literally, have your mind changed. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it's, it's not a threat. It's an invitation. Let me say that again. Jesus' repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is not a threat. It's an invitation to be a part of. That's what he wants. That's what God wants from you. He doesn't want to violate you. He doesn't want to use you up. He doesn't want to, what he wants to do is help you understand why you were made and how you were made. And all of that comes together in who Jesus Christ is. And all of what comes together is in his purpose and his plan. Everything else is a lie. Everything else is shallow. Everything else is temporary. But only his kingdom is eternal and lasts forever. So Jesus comes and says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then the remaining verses of this section do nothing more but just remind us what his kingdom is all about. I have shared with you my frustration with this word, and I don't mean it in the negative sense, but it's, it's come to really pain me a lot, actually. And the word is Christian. I have no fundamental problem with it, actually, I really do. There's, there's lots about the word Christian that I like and that I am drawn to. 
And then there's a lot of baggage that over the last, I don't know how many years, that we've attached to it, and I believe that the word, I actually believe that maybe the word is even broken now, the word Christian. Um, it, it, it seems like, interestingly enough, it's almost more of like a birthright. Well, we're a Christian family here. Really? Does anyone follow Jesus? No, but we're Christian anyway. You don't need to follow Jesus to be a Christian. Really? Like, to be a Christian, is it, is, it, is, it a, is it like a value system? Is that what being a Christian's all about? Is having certain values? Let me, let me prepare you. No. How about being born in a certain location? No. How about certain activities that we do, like going to church? No. That's not what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is what Jesus is getting at in these final verses of this text. And I hope it doesn't come as a shock to you, but if it does, then I really hope it comes as a shock to you, a shock that will challenge your thinking and challenge your, uh, your feelings, challenge your, your way of processing um, what it means to be Christian is intimately connected with Jesus, his identity, and his purpose. So Jesus says over and over and over again, follow me, follow me, follow me. That's the invitation. Jesus isn't trying to give us a value system. He is giving us himself. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee up north, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. By the way, it's not a redundant statement. It's Jesus' way of pointing out that they were like fishermen by trade. They're not just out uh, early on a Saturday morning. Uh, they got their nice bass boat, and this is what they do for fun. No, these are fishermen. By, by, this is their identity. This is their, their purpose. This is their livelihood. This is what they've been doing for a while now. And Jesus comes along, and he said to them, verse 19, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they said, that sounds like a great thing to do temporarily part-time while we're busy doing other things. Like think about how we hear these things and how we live them. Is that what they said? Hey, I'll go to church with you. Hey, I'll, that, is that what you want to know, Jesus? Look at the response. Jesus says, come and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. That's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Abandonment of self and following. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. In the boat was Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left their boat, livelihood, and their father, one of the strongest issues of identity, not because they hated him, but because they loved Jesus and they followed him. How did we turn the word Christian into churchgoer? How, how did we turn the term like believer or what it means to be saved into nice people who, who uh, pay their taxes on time? See, one of my deep concerns is that without Jesus, it's easy for you and I, with just the, the normal societal and parental and relational skills, to mask a ton of brokenness in our lives. But really, many of us are very successful at life and failures with God. 
and we can cover it up. We really know how to cover it up. After all, with the right education, you can get the right job and live in the right house. And you can dress up and play the part at church and never have a heart that is repentant, that is aware and responding to what God is doing in the world. And and church becomes just one more activity that you do, that you carve out, that you have have a slot in your life. And that's not what Jesus Christ is calling us to. He's not asking us to consider a hobby, but he's saying, follow me. See, the Christian word is deeply broken. I'd I'd like to get it back, and and, and that's why it's so important that the only way I can really get it back is not by writing a blog post, but by modeling it and by challenging my brothers and sisters in Christ. As Morgan likes to point out, we're all going to hold you accountable, Annie. All 1,200 of us, we're going to find out where you go to high school, and we're going to be watching you. Doesn't that sound like fun? No, but it does sound like family. See, this is what it means. It's a life dedicated. It's not cute. It's a life that is dedicated, dead to the old, alive to the new. And Jesus Christ makes it very, very clear. This is what it is all about. To be Christian is to adopt the attitudes and the the, the mindset, the belief system of Jesus Christ. Not to consider some things that he has to say, but to follow him. To say, this is who Jesus Christ is and I want to be like that. To say, this is what Jesus Christ did and I want to do that. That's what it means to be Christian. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be a follower. These are all the same words. For those who tell you that there are believers and then there are disciples and then there are, those people saying that are liars or confused. There is one word. There's one word. Followers. A synonym would be disciples. A synonym would be believers. A synonym would be saved. But it is about following Jesus. This is what the gospel calls us to. Verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues the truth about God, the truth about himself, and proclaiming the gospel, that word means good news, of the kingdom. God is here. God is here in me. This is a whole new day. I am about to change the world and change your life. And as part of that, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, when Jesus walks in, okay, all of that which is broken, relational brokenness, physical brokenness, brokenness, is challenged and changed. Right? But but again, weirdly enough, I've I've met people that would gladly trade Jesus's, um, they they gladly trade in Jesus for some of Jesus's teaching. And I know a lot of people, they get so excited about healing. Oh, if I could just be better. What would you give up? Anything, even Jesus? Yep. That's not the point. Jesus' ministry, his actions, healing every kind of disease, fits perfectly with his message. What is Jesus about? Telling the truth of himself and God's good news. Healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. That's that area beyond the Jordan. Through all Syria. And they brought him. Syria? Those aren't even Jews. You're right. And they brought him all the sick. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains. Those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics. And he healed them. 
and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, known as, otherwise known as the 10 cities on the southern shores of, um, of the Sea of Galilee. Great, great crowds follow him and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond. Literally, that whole map is just covered with the crowds and they are all interested in Jesus. But it's chapter four. Don't worry, they'll, they'll, they'll figure it out. This is where you and I have an opportunity to, to deal with the issues of identity and location and even more than that, what it really means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. The disciples represent in Matthew's gospel a group of people who are, um, who are repentant, who are responding to who Jesus Christ is, whose mind and whose will and whose actions are trying to mirror and respond to who uh, Jesus Christ is. But they're not the only ones. There are actually those on the other side of the spectrum, the religious leaders, mostly in Judea, but also in Galilee as well. They're the ones who already know everything about God. They're the ones who already know everything. There's not a lot of room to learn, not a lot of room to grow. I mean, I might need to repent on a few bad things that I've done, but fundamentally, God and I are on the same page on every issue. And then there are the crowds. And I want you to watch the crowds as the gospel rolls forth over the next few weeks and months. Because crowds are so interesting. Crowds like to stand right here in the early parts of Matthew's gospel, like close to Jesus. And as long as they're getting stuff, it's really easy to confuse the crowds. This is, again, one of my concerns, especially during a politically charged year where every candidate, even one speaking at Christian universities, can be absolutely appreciated for their Christian virtue. Really. Christian virtue. Oh yeah, by Christian I just mean good guy. Oh, I don't actually, and Jesus never did. It wasn't a synonym for good guy, it was a synonym for a follower of me, one who takes my life, my attitudes, my behaviors, my actions, and is just in the process of being transformed into my likeness. The crowds are cool with Jesus as long as there's something to get. But as the gospel moves on, there will be a few who will wander from the crowd and be disciples. But as the gospel moves on, there's more and more a distancing. Relegating Jesus and the truth about him to that one little corner of life and to existence. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like I don't mind being a Christian and I don't mind even doing certain church things, but let's kind of keep the religious aspects in perspective. Let's not get too excited. Let's not have our lives too disrupted, right? After all, lots of things we gotta do other than go to church on Sunday. And I think you know this, by the time we get down to the end, the crowds are way down here. You ever wonder, how do the crowds go from, you are awesome, thank you for healing my child, to crucify him, crucify him. It's because the more that they realize what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll, listen to this. I'm gonna challenge you with this thought. The more that you really know who Jesus is and what he's all about, the more polarizing he is. It's easy to stand here when you don't know much about him. But the more that you know about him, you're gonna either end up wanting to follow him 
and give up all of your mind and all of your heart and all of your life? Or are you going to find yourself going, I really don't want any part of this. You won't yell crucify, I doubt. But really, your life isn't, you don't have any interest in actually following him. And when the benefits run out, so do you. That's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ calls us, he invites us into this incredible relationship of peace with God. One more time, will you do this with me? Will you spend just a few moments reflecting on who Jesus Christ is, his call upon your life? Will you just spend just a few moments just thinking about that? And maybe reflecting on whether or not where you stand on this spectrum of crowd or disciple. (laughs) And maybe recognize that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is asking you to move. Think about that for a moment. God, we thank you for your persistence with us and your patience with us. Father, I pray that we would hear in Jesus, in the words of Jesus, an invitation to follow. And for those of us who already are, may it be a great affirmation of the hope that we have in you. Father, for those in this room that uh, really have never, have never surrendered to you, may your spirit do a work in their heart and in their mind. And Father, for those who are on the outside looking in, I don't know exactly where they stand or if their posture is one of um, aggression or confusion. May your will be done in their lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.